Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by former Speaker of the New York City Council, Christine Quinn. Quinn's spending the semester here as a spring 2015 fellow for the Institute of Politics. She's also recently appointed a special advisor to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Ms. Quinn, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I trust you have a great voice. You're, this is a pod you were meant to podcast or do radio or both. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> um, I also want to say, you know, it's funny to hear that I'm a spring 2015 fellow, which of course I am, but it seems like a, a mass, massively irritating thing that we are calling this the spring semester when A, it's still cold today and B, we had more snow you know, than Santa Claus has had as an, in his entire career, but nonetheless. What are you talking about? It is a gloriously warm 40 degrees out. Yeah. Where I'm, if you had asked me two months ago, I would have been praying for this kind of weather. No, I know. At least the snow is gone. Mostly, <laughs> mostly, mostly. So uh, you've been in politics in one way or another since the early 90s. Yes. What was it that originally got you into the game? Well, you know... Um, my father used to say I was cursed with clarity. Uh, it, politics, government, organizing social change, not necessarily in the beginning being the elected official. It was the only thing I was ever interested in. You know, my mom had been a Catholic charity social worker uh, and her friends who were around the house and, and stuff a lot when I was growing up, most of them were or had been social workers. So that kind of we need to help each other, we need to come together, we can make things better for each other. Mentality was very much alive in our house and, and very much the foundation of how she raised myself and my sister. My dad was an electrical engineer, but if you really ask him what he was, he was a shop steward in his union. And they went on strike twice when I was a kid, another time before I was born when my sister was little. So that sensibility was all really there too. And the, the two came together and really created a political consciousness in my mind and it was cemented by the library at my elementary school. I went to the parish elementary school St. Patrick's and it had like a lot of elementary school libraries have a rack of paperback biographies. They still have them. I bought them for uh, some a version of them recently for Christmas presents for a friend of mine's children. And there's stories of JFK and Martin Luther King and RFK and Booker T. Washington and Helen Keller and Eleanor Roosevelt and FDR and Abraham, you know, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And they're people who worked with other people and changed the world and made it better for other people. They were people who uh, helped people's lives, changed things that were wrong. And I was sold when I heard these, when I read these stories, it made it very clear to me that I wanted to be part of that work that was uh, focused on helping people. And did you always think that uh, elected office was the best way to you know, get that change? I actually thought elected office was not the best way to do it. I used to somewhat naively, now looking back, think what is the point of being an elected official? You are one vote. It's much import more important to be an advocate, an organizer, go out there and change 5, 10, 50 votes. But when I started doing uh, housing and tenant work in the late 80s around city council, I met amazing people. Um, these are New York names, so people may or may not know them, but Ruth Messenger and Steve DiBrienza and other uh, New York City elected officials who were much more pe than people who said yay or nay. They were organizers, they were advocates, they were activists, and it became clear to me 
that was another way to be an activist and an organizer was to be an elected official. So uh, when someone then who I had met doing tenant work, Tom Dwayne, asked me to run his campaign for city council in 1991, I said yes, which was not something I had originally would have thought I would do. And then when he asked me to stay on as his chief of staff, I did. I served in, as his chief of staff for five years. I then ran a crime victims assistance agency, the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project. And I got to say, whatever job I ever have, running a crime victims assistance agency will always be the hardest job I've ever had. It, it's a people who do that work do God's work and then when Tom ran for the Senate his seat opened up and you know I thought that would be if I was lucky enough to win the people's confidence a great way to continue to serve and and it was it was amazing it seems to be a recurring theme that uh, women in general are harder to convince to run for office uh, than than men. Do you think that's uh, that's true? Well I mean the numbers bear that out to some degree we run less than men but and I think there's some very understandable reasons for that. I mean, not true in New York City, but in other places and outside of New York City municipal elections, we don't have great campaign finance laws. You know, and, and look at the reality of pay, pay equity in New York, in, in the country, et cetera. Women often have less access to capital. So the millions and millions of dollars that you sometimes have to raise can be daunting to women. So I really think, you know, often people talk about what are women's issues. Campaign finance is a women's issue in my mind, very clearly, because when we have real campaign finance, I believe it's going to open up politics for a lot more women. Do you think that the so you so you're saying basically that the uh, the fact that women make whatever the the statistic is right, seventy eight cents yeah uh, that is that specifically translates into the ability to raise money I think the re, the the reality that in American society and, and the facts just bear this out men have more access to capital right mm-hmm. that affects and, and therefore often have an easier time raising the obscene amounts of money you now have to raise. That's part, that affects women in their decision of whether or not to be a candidate. So uh, apart from becoming Speaker uh, of the uh, New York City Council, of course, you were yourself a candidate for mayor yes. of New York in 2013. Um, your candidacy was especially notable because if you had won, you would have been the first woman to right. become mayor and also the first openly gay mayor of New right. York City. Um is that something that worried you uh, during the campaign? or, And is it something that worried you back when you first ran for office? Um, it certainly, no, it didn't worry me in any of the races, no. Um, when I ran for council, uh, the person who I was hoping to succeed, Tom Dwayne, when he was elected in 91, was the first gay city council member, first LGBT city council member, and the first openly HIV positive elected official in the world. (laughs) So this was a district that certainly was uh, more than comfortable with with electing LGBT people, if you deserve to be elected. Uh, When I ran, there were five candidates. Three of us were LGBT. One wouldn't state what his sexual orientation was and then there was this wacky right in candidate right in candidate who was openly heterosexual uh so uh it was not an issue in that race and i did not particularly think it and i did not worry about either gender or sexual orientation when i ran for mayor it's some some people have said that uh you know you were a front runner early on um have said that sexism is clearly something that had a role in in your eventual loss do you 
disagree with that or you know look I think there, it was a tough race and at the end of the day when you don't win a race uh, I think the if you if you're responsible in, in your look back as the candidate the top of the 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 pyramid so to speak in a campaign you're responsible mm. so ultimately the fact that we didn't win i take full responsibility for and looking back and and partially what's been great about my time here at the iop is i've had some moments and conversations and study groups that have really helped my look back and helped my look back be more thoughtful and productive and helpful um and so i've learned a lot do i think what kind of conversations that well you know it's interesting my um late mother when she raised my sister uh and me my sister's 10 years older than i am and she's a geologist so uh, two women in fields that were not you know not typically women's field Mm -hmm. my mom never i mean she was like very clear do whatever you want but figure out what it is you want to do and then do it exceedingly well so this idea that somehow my sister and i could have been impacted in any way shape or form because we were girls uh, you know and then women never was uttered was never kind of implanted in our brains and i think that is terrific yeah. But my sister and I have both noted this in conversations we've had since my race, and, and I've thought about it a lot more up here in different ways. When you are hit by it, because you will be in life still as a woman, it was stunning to us. Like, where did this come from? Which is absurd, because obviously, you know what I mean? I knew there was sexism in the world, but it kind of was so much more of a punch to the gut for myself and Ellen, my sister. And I think my reaction to that was plow through it. Talking about it was wallowing. Discussing it was whining. Mm -hmm. And just, it was all about forward motion and getting through. I used to love to say, you know, it's not the size of the obstacle. It's the angle and the speed at which you have to jump to get over it. Mm -hmm. And there's some truth to that. But you know what? Talking about it endlessly is wallowing. Mm -hmm. And complaining endlessly without taking action is whining. But talking about it is not the same thing as whining or wallowing. And we need to discuss the reality of sexism and homophobia and racism and ageism and everything else that has impacts on our society, that has impacts on us, that has impacts on our politics and our election systems. Because if we don't talk about them, we don't admit them. If we don't talk about them, we don't understand them. We don't understand the impact they're having on us personally, and we're never going to be strong enough to overcome them. So I think in part my just plow ahead was not a fully developed enough answer to the challenges of sexism and homophobia for elected officials like myself. And I think um, I needed to have moments where I stopped and was more reflective and more thoughtful and more strategic. And I think I've been able to connect some of those dots through the conversations with students and others here. LGBT issues in particular have obviously been very important to you. What do you think the status of LGBT rights in the country at large, where, where are they right now? Well, it's complicated because in some ways we've made warp speed success. I mean, marriage. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? Who would have ever thought? I mean, it wasn't so long ago that the people who were uttering the word marriage, everyone was saying, they're nuts. They're crazy. These people are out of their minds. It's possible. And now we're, you know, on the verge of the Supreme Court ruling again. And, you know, I'm knocking on the wood of the table. Um, 
you know, of it becoming a full, full reality. Amazing. But we just saw two weeks ago, Indiana proved the reality that homophobia and hatred is still alive and well in some parts of our country. Mm -hmm. And there is still in some places and in lots of places, unfortunately, a small, ignorant minority that is willing to put everything they've got into putting other people down. So what does that mean? Even before you pass these so-called religious freedom super-sized discrimination bills, we have many, many states and the federal government, but many states where that don't have, and the federal government don't have LGBT rights protection laws. In New York, my home state, we have a gay rights law. We don't have a gender equality non-discrimination act yet. So what does this mean? It means that in a lot of states, soon you might be able to get married on Saturday as an LGBT person and fired on Monday because you got married on Saturday. That's even before these crazy Indiana laws. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? The success, the speed, the strategy, et cetera, that we employed so successfully around marriage, we now have to employ it, one, to stop the spread of these so-called religious freedom laws, and to get real LGBT rights protection laws on the books in every state, fully inclusive with transgender and on the federal level. Now, that's just, you know, one of the the issues we need to work on. There's others, but that's one of the big ones. And I hope everyone is just extraordinarily excited and proud about what happened in response to Indiana. The LGBT community was terrific, but we had great straight allies who came out to support us in the sports community. I'm on the board of this group, Athlete Ally, that does amazing work organizing the straight athletic community to rid sports of homophobia and to push LGBT rights laws forward. They put out the final four fairness effort. We saw Charles Barkley, Reggie Miller, so many other, and then huge business folks. Look, I'm not a big Walmart fan. They got horrendous on labor, horrendous, 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 but you got to give credit where credit's due. They had an enormous impact on the governor of Arkansas. And uh, that type of business response is not something we would have seen, you know, five, ten years ago. And we people should be very happy about that. But And we should be very grateful, but nobody should be satisfied. Is this one of the causes that you'll be taking up in your role as a uh, special advisor to Governor Cuomo? Yeah, well, look, I was very proud of Governor Cuomo. He super quickly put a uh, travel ban in place in Indiana, which meant, you know, that the 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 basketball coaches from some of our state university of new york teams many of whom play in the tournament didn't get to go because since they weren't in the tournament you know right. it wasn't uh, uh uh i forget the word you it's not non-important travel whatever words you use anyway it essential thank yeah. you non-essential it wasn't essential if the teams were playing that'd be different but it was non-essential you know that, that was a big deal and i think it, it made a difference um one of the issues I'm absolutely going to be working on uh, for the governor and with the governor is the Gender Equality Non-Discrimination Act. When the gay rights law finally passed in New York, and now I can't remember the year I want to say. Can you discern uh, between what the gay rights law and the... Right. Gen- so the, gay, the law we have in New York State, 
which passed in the early 2000s, and I can't remember the year, it says sexual orientation. It is the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act. It added sexual orientation into the state's human rights law. It did not add in gender identity and gender expression. So lesbian and gay and bisexual people cannot be fired, discriminated against, but transgender people can. Now, New York City, our five counties, have both. Mm -hmm. There are a number of other counties who have passed county laws, but not every county in the state and not the state. So we need to basically add into our state human rights law protections for the transgender community. And that's a bill we call GENDA, the Gender Equality Non-Discrimination Act, uh, because God forbid you don't have an acronym. Uh, So uh, GENDA is something that's a very high priority for me in my work. I have uh, one more question, and it might be the most important one. Um, Do you eat pizza properly? I do uh, eat pizza properly (laughs) with my hands folded. Not with a knife and fork like uh, (laughs) current Mayor Bill de Blasio? Look, I don't want to disparage anybody's eating of anything, uh, but I will just say a fork has never touched my pizza, and we will leave it as that, though no judgment at all. (laughs) Well, Christine Quinn, thank you so much for being on Policy Cats today. <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. Cast. 